Welcome to Wealthion. I'm your host, Eric Chemi. So much going on right now with stock market at all-time highs, uncertainty about the direction of the economy. Are we in a recession or not? Will the Fed be cutting rates? How much will they be cutting? Geopolitical concerns, and of course, this drive for hard assets, right? Real estate, things like that that you can sink your teeth into, and it's priced to help you with inflation. There's so many factors to figure out right now, so I'm pleased to be joined by Christine Mastandrea. She's the COO of the White Stone REITs, publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. A lot of macro discussions to get into right now. So Christine, thank you for coming on the show with me. And I got to ask you, what's keeping you up at night right now with all of these nervous factors happening in the marketplace right now? I think it's always the economy. I mean, retail, which we focus on the retail sector, uh, the economy is everything for us. So as people spend, that has a great impact on our centers. And then, of course, the opportunity for growth. That keeps me up at night keeps you up in a good way or in a bad way? Because you say opportunities for growth, that sounds like a positive thing. True. So the challenge at this point in time is, in our sector in particular, uh, retail has been underbuilt. And so at this point, the challenge to grow, especially in this type of environment where interest rates are high, uh, it becomes a little bit challenging. So on the other side, because the economy is growing and because there's a new demographic a demographic spend that's coming it presents opportunities to get ahead with unique ways to merchandise for those markets. You know, I'm glad you, as soon as you started mentioning right, interest rates, Fed, like the first question I wanted to ask you when we started was, is the Fed going to kill the economy, right? With rates where they are right now in these fives, we haven't really seen them in a generation. Is this an economy killer? Well, we get that question a lot, in particular, the analysts ask what our point of view is. And if you really consider what's happened over the number of years, I think that Fed personally is squeezing out the excess. And there's been a lot of excess in our business. Um, it's just too too much product and the wrong kind of product has been built over the years. And so I don't see this as bad as it could be in the sense of what's happening because the consumer is still strong. I see it more as just a right sizing in the economic environment. Um, at some point in time, you know, we'd like to see, obviously, some drift down in rates because it does improve the profitability of our business. Yeah, that's the thing, right? When you think about real estate in general, REITs in particular, obviously, the, the storyline, whether that's myth or fact, but it's just they're rate sensitive, right? When, when rates go up, now you've got competition, fright and get yield in other places, and your borrowing costs go up. Like leverage is harder. When rates go down, that's a real, you know, that's real fuel for your business. How how true is that and how impacted are you in terms of rate sensitivity? Well, we're an asset-heavy business, so it has a huge impact. I mean, it, the tendency towards real estate is when there's a lot of liquidity in the markets, there's a lot of capital available, there's always, and it's a long cycle product, so there's always an overbuilding of the product. And we've certainly seen that in the last 20 years in certain types of asset classes. So, you know, at some point that, Eventually, that overbuilding stops everything. Uh, you have a little bit of a collapse in pricing. And for us, as we look to move forward, uh, there hasn't been a lot of building in retail. So for us, this provides a really great opportunity for you know, potential assets that we have uh, can't buy a whole lot more. So that's the challenge on the other side for growth. But for us, it's our, our assets have actually become more valuable because there's you know, it's just not a lot of occupancy right now. So, uh, or excuse me, a lot of vacancy. So we have a fully occupied market as far as space, but not a lot of vacancy. 
So again, that's the upside of the opportunity, but difficulty is to be able to build and grow. How is that possible? How can you have not a lot of vacancy? Because every every newspaper headline I read is everything's empty, right? Whether it's office, whether it's retail, it's either no one's going to work or no one's buying in person. And malls have to be, oh, we got to turn malls into some kind of experience because no one's coming here to shop. So I'm curious when you say we don't have a lot of vacancy, all I see about, hear about is, is vacancy. So I think this is where a little bit of the challenge of the business. So it, and it's a long cycle business. So it takes, mostly it's to get the approvals. When you see a building built, that's the easy part. Most of the work is getting, sourcing the property itself, getting the approval rights, uh, the pre-leasing activity. All that takes a long period of time. And particularly if there's a restricted, a very restrictive environment. So if it's a NIMBY, not in my backyard, it's even more difficult. So fortunately, we're in Texas. There's uh, The zoning laws are a lot looser here in the markets we're in. But that being said, a long cycle product, by the time you have the match and supply and demand, they can sometimes take upwards for 10 years for that to meet. And we've certainly seen that in retail. So now it becomes about the right size retail. So we've had the collapse and the shift and the change of what used to be large format retail, whether it was malls and power centers. At this point in time, it's all about convenience and being closer to home. And that type of retail right now is in high demand. Interesting. So how does somebody, you know, because we have a lot of viewers who are thinking, I need to make money and I'm only going to make money in real estate. I'm not going to make money in stocks because I don't want to buy at the all-time highs here. Or if I think the Fed's going to cut, real estate's going to get supercharged. I want to be involved in that. But we know a lot of people lose their shirt in real estate, right? Mm -hmm. So so what do you tell people who maybe they don't have the the massive billions of dollars of, I'm going to I'm going to do a big, massive portfolio, but I'm going to start small. And there's been a lot of real estate moguls, they started small, right? They started with one shopping center, one apartment, and the next thing you know, they've got a thousand. So what do you tell somebody who wants to go down that path? Where do they begin? I think the best part about it is always starting small. There is a lot of product that's small that you can start with. So um, I remember for me, my first uh, experience in real estate is my dad bought duplexes. So I got to experience he would take me around. We'd collect rents together and, you know, start there and you start building upon that, that asset base. And from there, you can continue to grow. Uh, we see that a lot with people that do house flipping. I mean, they start small and then they start getting into, because the ability to take, you know, take that asset and then redeploy that capital without him to pay a capital gain, you can redeploy and you can get bigger as you continue to grow. So, you know, one of the things that Whitestone is known for, at least according to my research, you'll know better than I am, is obviously the, you know, folks, service retail in particular, food and grocery, restaurant, things that you got to do in person, right? Or it's, it's been less disrupted. It's not just you're buying things, normal, typical store retail. What differences and trends are you seeing there in terms of people who want to still get together? They want to be in person. They want to do something that requires them putting on real pants, you know, doing their hair and getting into the car. Yeah, this is, especially with work from home, our centers have done very, very well. We've got the tendency to be more in the suburbs and more anchored to communities living uh, versus being in urban centers. I think that we're seeing uh, what's really important. I think this is becoming more and more important, just having to do with the, the age of just the cell phones. People are actually becoming more disconnected and the need to be connected is more important than ever. So especially in restaurants, uh, we are heavily focused on restaurants as far as uh, restaurants that are, are what we consider uh, your local watering holes or where do you go to visit to see your neighbors? 
Where do you spend time with others? Where do you connect with others? Where are there places of collision? And that's the most important thing is how do you bring people together? Sometimes you think about it in the sense of accidentally, right? So walking paths are very, very important to us, not just focusing on uh, the automobile and parking, but how can we bring people together in outdoor space, patio space, how that interacts with the community, um, all those things we focus very, very, very much in a detailed type of fashion with who who we bring into our centers and then how we design our centers. How does it typically work? Do you find you're reaching out to companies and businesses and say, hey, we've got vacancy, we want you to come in? Or is it the opposite where a business says, hey, we're looking for space, would you please let us in? What's the typical, who's calling who first? It's a little bit of both. I, I like to say that I think for us, the most important thing is we focus on local. So we do, we're a little bit different than most REITs where we are about 70% local and regional uh, businesses versus your typical large anchor tenants. And the larger companies are the reverse. They're about 70% the larger anchors. So you know, usually um, in our space, we're trying to find the best operators in our neighborhoods. Uh, our people are direct boots on the ground um, you know, researching, and by the way, we use data analytics to help us with this as well. We're reaching directly to business owners to come into our spaces. And then at times as well, because we're very well located, we have, uh, you know, it's, we have, I would consider some of the larger operators seek us out. And, um, you know, we also work through the brokerage community as well. What is your data analytics saying about Oh, stay away from these areas, either it's either these sectors or these geographies. What's sort of the red flag right now that your data is telling you? Mm -hmm. So I think what's most important is to understand the traffic drivers of your center. And especially with the data analytics, it, it you have an open, you know, your phone's sort of open source about you, where you go, how much time you spend there. Uh, all the way. You mean my phone. You mean my phone is like giving away too much information to people like you. Yeah. That's a little scary, right? Because <laughs> now you take <laughs> you actually uh, companies like Esri uh, take the social media scrapes. So it's not just what you give away from your phone and what you open the world to. It's what you do with your phone, how you use it, how you communicate, and that all comes into a use of psychographics, which we, you know, we do employ that use to understand more about. You, what you like, which you, who you like to be with, what you like to do with your off time, where you like to spend your money, um, how you like to spend time with your family. So that's, that's been a very, very important indicator for us as to new tenants that we bring in and also, you know, areas that we may want to avoid. So uh, we stay towards growing markets. And if we look for places that, that growth is actually starting to constrict um, or, or it's difficult to grow in those markets and, and, you're finding that um, the skilled labor force is moving away. Those are the places that we avoid. So say that again. So the skilled labor force is moving away. And then what was the other factor you just yeah. said right before that? So the skilled labor force is moving away. So again, real estate's all about location. Right. So if you have a shift in a skilled labor force moving away, that's, that's always a concern. But also sometimes you can see, and so again, this is a little bit of the data analytics, but it's also boots on the ground when you could see a neighborhood transitioning. And you you start losing population because I you know I live in New Jersey right so I see a lot of stories about oh New Jersey keeps losing people because they all go to the Carolinas and Florida and Texas and they they keep going south is that the kind of of trend that you're looking for to make sure that you stay away from places like that 
So actually, we built the company on the trend of what was happening in business-friendly markets. So in 2006, we started looking and seeing that there was a very big shift in the demography of the United States. And uh, Texas was the first market that we looked at. And then we also looked at Arizona as well. And you know, part of the move, part of the move is just a more desirable place to live as far as the climate. Uh, but the second thing that we saw that was very important is where we saw the growth of uh, secondary education and also the workforce. So in particular, Texas has a very broad and skilled workforce. And in addition to that, it's a very economically desirable place to live. It's a low cost of living. So we sought out the largest, fastest growing markets in the country at that point in time. And it was clearly Dallas, Houston, even San Antonio, which was in the top 10. Austin was growing very quickly. And then we started looking as well at Phoenix, which was actually, if you looked at Scottsdale and some of the East Valley was growing younger. So that's where we actively sought out those markets. So we looked as well for the type of labor force that was supporting it. Yeah, so you're staying as far away as possible from from my area. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Michigan, and it was really hard to see what was happening in Michigan in particular uh, in some of the Midwest states, because I am a Midwest girl at heart. In my family, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, and it just got more and more difficult to conduct business. And and do you see that really having that that follow-on effect? Like, for example, a company like yours, hey, you were in Michigan, now you're in Texas because you're following you're following the money, right? You're following good business practices, good regulatory environments that people will come, but it sort of feels like it's creating the spiral, right? You came after you saw the growth, but your presence will help encourage more growth. It's like it's an avalanche that builds on top of itself. It does. And because, you know, again, our focus is so you know, much of having grown up in an entrepreneurial family, saw an opportunity there to serve entrepreneurs in growing businesses. So at that point in time, uh, we moved the company, it was around 22 people, moved them down to Texas, started supporting that group and start seeing that this is, this is not just a Texas thing, um, but, you know, it was the growth in immigration into the community. It was uh, younger people starting businesses. We just saw that there was a real differing change in how people approach risk and just a much more entrepreneurial economy. What do you mean by like how they approach risk in terms of like there's more of a risk taking culture? Is that yes. what you mean? Like, yeah, I think it, most definitely. I think you'd have to and, and not just the culture, but people appreciate it. People appreciate the difficulty in taking on the risk. And if you're going to punishing the risk or not realizing how difficult yes. the risk is. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, I saw quite a bit of that, you know, coming, you know, from certain environments that people didn't didn't really understand how important it is to support the entrepreneurial environment. The more you punish it, the more regulation, the most the more restriction, uh, restrictive nature that you place on business is just all the harder to to start up. And it's not for the faint of heart to begin with. So uh, watching just the mindset around risk-taking, the support for those type of businesses, uh, they are much greater in the locations that we're in. Do you do you concern yourself with the general national level risk-taking that when, when you can find better states, right? You can go down south, you can find these better environments, but at some point, federal rules tend to overwhelm all of it, right? It's like, okay, well, these are federal income tax rules or capital gains tax rules or real estate tax rules or regulatory rules, or you got to hit this, you know, climate emissions thing or this health. Like, is there a concern for you that at some point the U.S. is going to dry up in terms of opportunities relative to other countries? Well, 
you know, that is always a challenge, but I, I'm just a big believer in the American dream. I, you know, just look at the growth that we've had in the last 10, 20 years. And, um, I still see, and again, we're in, we're in economies where we are, uh, there are large people just keep coming here for opportunity and they come with ideas. And I, I just don't see it stopping at this point. I keep yeah. thinking that something will interrupt it and it hasn't. It's quite the engine. What, what if you what have you thought? And obviously you guys aren't stock pickers, right? You have a stock, but you're focused on real estate. But when you see the stock market at all time highs, obviously that all relates, right? There's money being put into the markets in all places, right? People want to invest, they want to take risk. And there's been a lot of the the headwinds in terms of media headwinds, right? Like, is there a soft landing? Is there this you know, pullback economically? How strong is the labor force? What's your perspective on it? Because you're seeing a lot of growth with boots on the ground. You're seeing a lot of growth in your data. You're seeing the growth in the markets. You're, you're saying you don't have any vacancies, right? So you're seeing a pretty bullish environment. What do you say to the bears out there who say, hey, I think this economy is, is, is due for a massive collapse here this year? The difficulty is I just, I think if you pay attention to the news, you're always going to have fear and you're just not going to get out there and do it. And, you know, I just, again, being around entrepreneurs, working with entrepreneurs, they just don't, in fact, they don't have time to pay attention to it. <laughs> so, they're so busy. They don't have time to read the news. They yeah. don't have time to focus on that. It, if they do, they're, you know, why would you want to take the risk if you believed in any of that? And again, this is where I say that you the people that we see forming businesses and starting businesses and expanding their businesses, they're just rolling. And uh, I thought that there might be a little bit of a slowdown in leasing activity because in particular, the cost of capital being higher. But here's the thing that I think that's happened with the entrepreneur over the last, to begin since the crisis in 2008, is that they've worked in capital constrained markets for a long time. Ever since what happened in 2008, it hasn't been very easy for them to get banked. And so many of them grow organically. They grow out of their own cash flow. And at the same time in the service economy, you're not platforming inventory costs into your business. So Wait, you what, does that mean? what does that mean you're not platforming inventory costs into your business? What do you mean by that? Because they're mostly asset light businesses. So it's, it has more to do with the cost of labor than it does with uh, building an inventory. Oh, it's like a restaurant rather than a factory. That's correct. Right. Right. It's it's the difference between picking up what I would consider, um, you know, clothing, soft goods, hard goods, all of that. That's an inventory that you have to move quickly into the market. Service based businesses are more about people. It's so that's where labor costs do impact service based businesses much to a much greater degree. Oh, I see. So in the service-based business, you care more about the labor costs than maybe you care about interest rates. Like you yeah. care more what, what the wage level is than what your borrowing level is because maybe you're not borrowing that much. That's correct. Okay. So do you see then a lot of uh, what do you call tailwinds, right? The positive wins. You see a lot of positive wins if the Fed is going to be cutting you know, multiple times this year. Do you think that's going to matter a lot or maybe not as big as people are hoping? I think it will matter a lot in our industry. Uh, in particular, so what we are seeing is that the shift in this new demographic of spend that's coming in. So millennials, which have had a very, I consider a much longer delay in their spend in the market compared to their their previous cohorts. And a lot of that has to do with just the cost of their education, uh, you know, the cost of buying a home. Many of them still haven't really had an opportunity to buy homes like, uh, you know, I'm I'm Gen X, and I was able to buy a home much earlier in my life. 
they're waiting with you know household formation, so on and so forth, showing up more around age 30, you did the first group is just starting to buy their homes. So this is there's a lot of money coming into this group. And part of it, part of it has to do just with the wage growth that they had. And the other also has to do with some of the wealth transfer that's happening at their age too. So that's all starting to come. I think there's big tailwinds that are coming from this group and the group behind them. It's funny you say it because I, I do wonder nowadays, I look at how expensive a home is relative to how much money people make. And, and we know, right, the home price has gone way up and the income's gone up, but not as much, right? So the the number of years, I think of it like how many years of income does it cost you, you know, in terms of the home price? And that ratio has gone way up. And I fear, and maybe I'm reading the news too much, that no one's going to be able to buy a home anymore. You'll have to make, you know, so much money to be able to buy a home that, you know, like I live in a you know normal suburb. A typical home now is like a million dollars. That was unfathomable back in the days. Like how many hundreds of thousands of dollars do you have to make to buy a regular home, right? And so that's where I, I feel like, are we getting to this point of we're being stuck, right? And there's not enough new supply in places that people want to live unless you keep moving out miles and miles away. How do you how do you see that all solving itself? So I think that is one of the most troubling things about the opportunity again for younger people. Beyond, especially if you think about, well, the millennials are just starting to hit 40, so they're really not young anymore. They're not, they're still viewed as kids sometimes. I think it's really unfortunate. Uh, maybe that's because not many of them have kids. So that's, it, this is something that probably troubles me quite a bit for that generation is the lack of opportunity for home ownership. And what we are starting to see is that you know, local, that we consider local municipalities are starting to recognize this and that they're going to have to shift and change. Uh, their point of view on density, home density, uh, as to you know where they're going to provide better a better opportunity for a living and a, a financially feasible living environment because that's again that's your that's your new workforce, right? So if you don't provide that opportunity, you're not going to get that talent. Yeah, I think about something you said earlier around the data. And, and every company, every industry keeps saying, oh, we're going to be disrupted by AI. And whenever you say data and you talk about the phone spying on you and saying, I, yeah. I just think there's a big AI play there, right? There's, okay, what what can we figure out based on all these patterns? Have you, you know, in terms of your company, have you made different investments all of a sudden in the last couple of years because the, the AI is better, the data analytics are better? All of a sudden you're thinking, oh, you know, I didn't know that. And we never would have been able to figure that out with just spreadsheets or just boots on the ground. Is there an actual investment change that's happening? now? Yeah. So during COVID, uh, a group came out with Facer AI and there are other data analytics or location software type of products that are coming out to better understand traffic patterns and what drives traffic. So in the past, you'd always have to rely on sales reporting. Now you can see directly the traffic patterns that are coming into your centers, where they're going to. And I think that, uh, so an example of this that I can provide that I've used a lot is, you know, who is actually providing the repeat traffic? So we look for centers where we get a certain amount of customer stickiness. We want to see you coming back, not just once or twice a week, several times a week and going to different stores. So what does that mean? Who drives that traffic? Well, one of my favorite traffic drivers are schools. We love having our centers near schools because it's the most convenient. Then we're the most convenient location. Well, right? I was going to say, when you said multiple times a week, yeah. I'm thinking, where do I go multiple times a week? And then as soon as you say school, like, oh, that's five days yeah. a week right there. Yeah. I don't think anybody takes the bus anymore to school. They're usually dropped off by the parent. 
And then there's always activities after school as right. well. So, um, so we, that's one of our, what I've always seen is a, is a very impactful traffic driver. And we've seen that that's clearly the case. And in particular, we also look in our centers and say, where, where are we seeing a dynamic of traffic that, uh, you know, we have to maybe match according to the business hours of the use for that center because uh, you, you don't want everybody coming in at the same time. Then there, there's a lack of convenience. And there's a parking issue. So we've carefully matched up our users by placer analytics and, and using that information also to seek out growing tenants and other places that we can bring in as well. So that's been very helpful for the last couple of years. You know, I think about this a lot. When you when you see a restaurant or you see a place, you think, oh, it, the peak optimization isn't there, right? Everyone tries to come at once and then it's not good service or not enough parking yeah. and then it's empty the rest of the day. Whether it's a restaurant or a store or a barbershop, whatever it is, it's like if they could have smoothed it out, they'd have a lot more money. And it's interesting that your that your AI, your data analytics is, is really actually starting to fine tune that kind yeah. of perspective yeah. to help you make a better investment decision. It's very, very helpful for us to mix centers. And what we look for is we look at peak optimization of about 18 hours. So I see. utilizing the entire time frame. And now how do I how do I tell my phone to stop spying on me so you don't get this information? <laughs> I, I wish I had an answer to that. Fortunately, I'm in real estate. So our industry is a little bit behind the times, a lot of times approaching tech. But uh, the difficulty, I think, and again, you know, how the right to privacy has always been an issue and that that's a whole other that's a whole other animal to talk about right it's uh but people seem to be more open to sharing information just sort of accept that that's a part of life now yeah and uh, whether that's good or bad um it remains to be seen does it spook you a little bit like when you go through all the reports that you get on an aggregated level are you like how did they figure all this out it does and it spooks me a little bit when we use it because it is a little bit invasive and there is one of the centers that we have uh, that I don't live that far from. I go, well, you kind of told it to me. <laughs> it's, it's a little uncomfortable. Uh, it's so, and, you know, going forward into the future, it's very valuable information because I do want to make sure that we successfully serve the neighborhoods. And so that means making sure that I'm making the right decision about what, you know, who, you know, who, what businesses serve those communities. So it, it helps to match that up appropriately. It, it's a reminder, though, that the companies behind the scenes are a lot smarter than we may realize, right? Like, well, yeah. we may not even realize how much data this thing is giving off because you gave some examples. And I, I think, oh, I didn't even realize it was sharing that kind of data. So it, it's not even so much what our privacy choices are, but not even being aware of what the phone is giving back to companies. So I'm thinking more from a bullish investment point of view. We may think companies have these headwinds, da, 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 but they have a lot more data than we realize, and they're making decisions based on that very accurate data. And I think that's always the challenging part of really how do you use that data effectively to understand, right? How do you, how do you slice it? How do you work? So uh, the company I'm most impressed with, and it's actually, it's a company that's been around since the 60s, is Esri. So it's environmental. Esri. Yeah, Esri. Um, environmental software and research institute oh esri right i thought they were called esri but maybe we just call yeah, them esri yeah, so we that. call it esri and yeah. it's uh something we've used for 20 years and it's been it's it's been a huge impact for us to understand our communities and i think i think they handle it in a more sensitive way but i you know it's again it's these are black boxes that are interesting to see how the information comes out and how how do we use it as an end user 
when you talk about millennials, you talk about phones, I, I think about a couple of things as it relates to real estate is all the social media, the TikToks, the, the, the YouTube channels about, oh, here's how you can flip. Here's how you can make money in real estate, right? There's all this media about this kind of stuff that people think they can be you, right? People think they can be you because they saw it on a YouTube channel or a, a 60 second TikTok. Hey, I know, I know you've got decades of experience, but I saw one minute TikTok, so I'm going to compete against you. Or, or the way people are presenting their image, right? Their social media image and, and how they, how they live in what's called the real world, but it's, it's this digital world. Are you seeing this, this weird impact on both of those things, just how they spend money and how they think they're going to try um, to compete in, in real estate. Yes. So I'll separate those two. So yeah. one of the, the most engaged areas that we're finding in our communities now are all about health, wellness, beauty. Yes, that's a growing, that has been growing, probably doubling in size in our centers over the last 10 years. And much of that has to focus, that's that's all about being on Instagram, TikTok. Uh, and in fact, one of the interesting areas that we've seen a huge amount of spend is actually men in beauty. It's almost as much as women. Men in beauty, what are they buying? Yeah, I, I should ask you that question. <laughs> so, uh, a lot of it is about uh what I would consider, you know, looking like a well-manicured man and uh, promoting themselves and looking well. And so that's been a very, very active, active space for us that we've seen. That has not shown up before. I always remember my dad. He would just, you know, buy toothpaste and aftershave. That's about the most. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> then you brush your hair with your hands and you're done. That's right. But, but what do you mean by active space in terms of you have locations like like you mean salons barbershops like places selling them in what do you mean by your active in it you mean physically yes, so barbershops have been that's been a fun one to watch and grow specifically tailored towards men uh in the med space so med spa space uh that, cryotherapy that kind of stuff uh cryotherapy's been big uh, we're starting to see also uh what you know we call sweat and sauna is becoming really big right now so that's your perspire uh we're Fitness across the board has been a huge, uh, very, very large growing uh, population for us and something that we've really leaned into over the years. Uh, boy, I just, I think that the more, I'm always learning, this is a great part about our business, is that we get to see new businesses in the beginning stages and growing and so but um, Yeah, it's been a big spend. And how does a typical lease agreement work. So let's say I'm a business owner and I'm going to do my men's spa, right? And and I'm now, you're my landlord, I'm the tenant. Is it percentage-based of income or is it typically a flat rate? Like, hey, you get 5000 a month and then whatever I can make, I can make. Or is it you get 10% of what I sell because you check the credit cards? How does that typically work? So retail's a little bit different than most products. So most people are experienced from paying their mortgage or having spent time in a multifamily residential community. Right, like a fixed rent. Yeah. Yes, a fixed rent. And you know, the value of, of the real estate that you own is based on the contracts, right? So it's not just, so I'm going to break this down. So first, the values in the land first, and then the restrictions that you have around that land as to what you can build on, right? So, you know, do you have the best, would you have the best use for that location? So you start there, start with the land, the value of the land, the restrictions, and now the building that's on the land, is that the best use for that location? Then you move to the next step, is that is who, you know, who is leasing from you for that? So that's the value of the contract. 
in that battle that comes into the value of the overall property. So we start there. A lease, typically in retail, has what's called pass-through. So you're, pay you're paying a base rent. In addition to that, you most likely do have annual increases. And then in addition to that, you actually pay the pass-throughs. So it's common area, maintenance, taxes, and insurance. So those, those get passed through. And then you may have anywhere from a three to a five to a 10 year. And then there's some 20 year leases, uh, but most leases now really go out to about 10 years. And you have the right to that space, but you have certain restrictions as to what you're able to do in that space or the uses for that space. And then a little complicated. Our retail is actually the most complicated product out there. And then I guess, and maybe you said, maybe I miss it, but then when they do their their sales, let's say I'm, I'm selling shoes or I'm selling razor blades, whatever. Do you get a percentage on that because of the cash registers that you sync up? Or is it just, no, like if they sell nothing or they sell a million dollars a month, they're paying based on those other factors that you already said. Because I don't think you you had a sales percentage factor when what you So said. you're right on this. So at the same time, you'll have a percentage rent clause. So after a certain break point, then there's a percent percentage rent that's based on the revenue for that space. Okay, it, so it is in there. Yep. So there's an upside to that as well. We consider that's almost like an equity kicker. For you, right? Like that's yep. your upside in all of these businesses. Like, yeah, you're almost, uh, you're kind of like half bond, half equity investors in all of these businesses. You want all of them to sell as much as possible. We do. And I think that's, that's again, when we talk about successfully serving the neighborhood, it doesn't do us a good service to the neighborhood if you have a business that's existing in the space but not really maximizing their sales or not serving the neighborhood well and just existing. Uh, it doesn't drive traffic for the other tenants. It creates uh, sometimes a disincentive, I think, to even keep a business like that in there for us and for them as well. So business, you know, businesses do have a life cycle and an age to them. Uh, typically, you wouldn't invest in being an entrepreneur if you didn't have 10 to 20 years of life, right, towards, you know, a business. Right. And, you know, we always look and we make sure that we're cultivating the right businesses in our centers. What's a type of business that you all have bailed on in the last, let's, let's say post-COVID? What's something that you're just like, we're done. We're not doing this again. I think that, uh, so it's always hard again. I'm an entrepreneur, so I don't like to think about the death of a business. That's always or I'll rephrase it. I'll rephrase it. So it's not as it's not as deadly. But but <laughs> what's a what's a type of business that you're that you're transitioning away from that feels like maybe it's it's kind of past its its peak in terms oh, of yeah. serving the community. So I can start with COVID. So when COVID happened, that was a true time, and especially for us, I think uh, one of the things that I really liked about our portfolio is that it performed very very well during COVID. We had the um, the our, our collections were the top in the industry. People were paying their rents. And part of the reason why is that we had local and regional tenants and they were able to flex very, very quickly to meet the market needs. They got open right away. But the national tenants didn't matter where you were, you closed. So you had a lot of customer switching. And that was really interesting. If you were a local coffee shop and Starbucks was closed, you were able, that was the first time you could get a foot in the door with a customer that had a stickiness towards Starbucks. And so we saw a lot of the local and regional businesses growing during that point. And so we decided to take that opportunity and see who was performing and who was struggling. And we found that there were a number of 
restaurants at that point that just weren't performing as well. So we took that moment to to rework those leases. And at that point, I would say in 2021, the first quarter, our restaurants, all our second generation restaurant space was almost completely leased up. It was that fast. People wanted to get back into the market, seeing people being with people again. So that happened very, very quickly. I'd say then what we've seen over the last two years is the transition away from the financial institutions. Uh, they aren't traffic drivers like they used to be. The banks, These are like bank branches, like credit union branches, bank branches. Um, you know your your typical local state farm, farmers insurance, so okay. on and so forth. No one's going into those. It's all remote, all online. Yeah, it's remote, online. There's consolidation. Those interested industries. The cost of a bank branch doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, that and it, quite frankly, I mean, those are your best corners. So I love getting those spaces back. They're great buildings. You know, they're easy to reposition. Uh, the only thing that gets costly is if they have a bank vault. But uh, by and large, they've been my favorites. The bank vault is really that big of an expense to deal with? It is, because you think about it's all it's all reinforced <laughs> at this big, heavy door. It's always like, does it? That's the first question I ask is, does it have a bank vault? Uh, <laughs> but in most cases, that, that went out of style even in the 80s. So not that many banks had There's not yeah, a lot of to the bank vaults. It's funny because there's some, you know, old. this is an old town that I'm in and, and there are some bank vaults and some of them are like, the, the bank is still there, but it's a modern bank and the vault is just like, I don't know, it's a closet or something. And then there's others where, oh, now it's a restaurant and the bank vault is some kind of cool thing that people can do with it or a wine cellar, but they're stuck right. with they it. Make yeah. it great. That's about the only thing you can transition them over for is like a wine cellar or even a cooler, but still you got to remove the door. It's very difficult to manage. That, but that's a good point. So then, look, that's a good example. Like the banks, let's say, or you know, an insurance office, will you go to them and knock, knock and say, hey, if you guys want to get out of your lease, I've got somebody else that wants to take it for a higher rate. Or will you wait for them to either finish their contract or come to you and say, hey, we want to get out of here? And generally, we do wait for them, you know, because it's a, that's, that's now more corporate in nature. And you can get an indication when you see sort of shifting environment. The banks are either, if there's some sort of consolidation of branches, and you can, again, this is where we use Placer and, you know, you know other forms of analytics to see what kind of traffic, so we can expect it at the time. And, um, you know, get ready to start looking in the market for other opportunities for those spaces. That's right. You know, you know in advance based on this, oh, no one's going to that bank. You so can we're, see that. You can you see know, it. It's almost like it's a leading indicator. If we know they're not going. So we can predict when the contract's up, we're probably going to get this back. So now yeah. we can start planning on who might be in there at that point. That's correct. That's super fascinating. So then then I'm wondering, my last question is for people who want to invest in real estate, is it better to, and I mean people let's say that, I'm going to take my, myself as an example, don't have real estate experience, right? But let's say people got savings, they want to invest and it's, I could put it in the market or I could buy something in real estate. Should they buy actual real estate? Should they buy a REIT? Because you know, a basket REIT, like there's, two functionally very different things, right? One of them is effectively a stock and the other one is you own the hard asset and you're the one doing the, the boots on the ground work. Well, what would you recommend for someone trying to figure it out? So it depends on your time frame and your need for liquidity. I mean, I think that all, it always comes down to those two things with real estate. Um, if you're going to be an owner of real estate and you're going you're gonna to have to be prepared, that's not just buying it and collecting checks. It's much more actively managed than, than most people expect. And so I think that's why a lot of people maybe look at it as an interest to them, but 
a little bit concerning as far as what what does it take to manage something like that. So, uh, so I'm always careful that you have to think about your time frame and do you have the time to actively manage it or the resources to manage it. I would not recommend going directly into retail because it's a very complicated product and there's a lot more involved in it. However, you know, a small group of apartments is something that's manageable. Uh, a you know, again. Home rentals, which I think now you're competing with the big guys buying those as well. So it gets a little bit more difficult. But if you know your neighborhood, I would consider buying. I would definitely, because now with Airbnb and, and you know, again, the challenge with um, being able to afford a home, I think single family rentals are going to continue to become big and more and more important into the, the economy. Uh, that being said, the other option is the REIT space, which we're in. Um, I prefer the liquidity of a public read versus a non-traded read um, just because, you know, you need to get out or you need to shift your investment policy, you're able to do so. That being said, uh, you know, a lot of people aren't necessarily comfortable with the volatility, especially at this point in time with REITs. Uh, when interest rates kept going up, you know, it started, it obviously impacted, you know, impacted our stock price. So um, it, I think it's a mix of both. That's a good point. I think it's that the time frame, the time frame and liquidity need. I think that's good for yeah. people to remember. And this idea that it's passive income is definitely not passive income. Everyone I know that owns apartments, this sounds horrible. This sounds like so much work. I'd rather just have my job than deal with than deal with that kind of house because it's it's as you know, boots when it's it's hand to hand combat, right? If you've got a tenant who's difficult, whether it's a corporate, you know, small business owner yeah. or or just a person living in an apartment or house. And they can make your life miserable, right? And and you got to figure out a way to deal with it. It's a lot of diplomacy and, and combat there. It is, it is. And, you know, again, it's a contract. So that involves the legal system. And unfortunately, from time to time, we have to work within the legal system based on the issues with the contract, whether it's, you know, making a change to the space or other types of optionality that we have to bring into our centers. Uh, they're, you know, Unfortunately, we have a legal team that uh, has to deal with those things. But you probably uh, got a bunch of lawyers on staff. Yeah. It's it's part of it's part of what we have to do. And then, and lastly, because you mentioned it, the last few years when we had that sort of zero percent interest rate environment, that was a real golden age for REITs, right? Borrowing nope. is easy. There's no yield. Do you think? And REITs sort of came of age in that time. Do you think that 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 age is over now? Because maybe we're never getting back to zero percent again. Is it just a, a a new generation of how REITs will trade and how they'll perform? Because it's that was a once in a lifetime gift at those zero percent. Yes, I think that's a really good point. And I think what what I've always seen with this is this is where the operators, the good operators, that separates you from is you're you're a good operator, and I believe we're really good operators in the space that separates you from just the financial engineers and the aggregators. Right. And so that's the big difference. So REITs were able to grow. Uh, so I started in the space in the 90s, where sort of the golden age of the start of REITs. And at right. that point, you've had a number of firms. Uh, they'd gotten in trouble. Uh, you know, a lot of it having to do with, again, the lending environment and the challenges with uh, uh, what I would consider, you know, probably product that shouldn't have been built or overbuilt at that point in time. And then you've had the 90s, and again, that was the late 80s. Then you've had the 90s where all of a sudden the public markets discovered REITs, and you ended up with a number of these portfolios going public and being able to grow tremendously to a very large size over the years. But if you think about who the largest REITs are, 
it's actually in the industrial space. It's the tower REITs. It's not your, it's not Simon anymore. They're not the largest. Right. So it's really shifted as, as far as an asset class as well. And so what I find very interesting about it is, you know, at this point in time, uh, I think the good are just going to get better. And they think those that aren't as good are going to be merged in with the others. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it reminds me, it, the analogy is not a great one, but it reminds me as a big uh, NASCAR fan, when they had restrictor plates on the cars, all the cars went the same speed. So it, bad drivers could often win races at Daytona and Talladega, right? Because no one had to brake and, and they could just floor it the whole time and the cars weren't going as fast as they could be. And, that, and then once you go to a regular track where the tracks diagram and without restrictor plates, the better drivers would win because as soon as you had to brake and accelerate, you saw who actually was more talented at that and, and maneuvering their car. So this this reminds you that like the better companies will stand out because 5% interest rates is kind of like, well, you're going to have to brake and accelerate. Who's going to do it better? Yes. I, I think that's a great analogy. And I think we're already starting, starting to see a little bit of shift and unexpected places as well where that's happening. Uh, even the multifamily space in some cases is challenged right now, which is really surprising because the demand is there, right? There's, there's more and more population growth that continues, but even multi is getting a little bit challenged unexpectedly. And that again has to do with, you know, cheap money. Just finish that thought. I was going to end, I was going to end, but you just, just finish that thought. Tell me, tell me one more about that. Just wrap that up. Okay. So again, when you have such cheap money, you're focused more on just building product and flipping it. And especially right. in the multifamily space, there was just so much money coming into it. So many operators continue to build. And then what's changed a lot is the ability to raise rents. It's, it's, you don't have the same transparency in the market to raise rents right now, right? And so there's been a little bit of slowdown, too much product. And all this product was built into with very, very large rent increases over the next couple of years because your leases turn every year. Well, all of a sudden this changes. Your borrowing costs just went up. And at the same time, you don't have the same rent increases. And you're not also able to fill them as quickly. So what's happening is some of these projects are turning upside down, which is, again, common in our industry. And then office, that's a whole other category. Yeah, then, then they'll be here for another hour talking about that. I, I want to keep talking to you the whole day, but I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, okay, I think we've done a lot here, but this is so fascinating, Christine. Thank you so much. And just before we go, tell us where people can can find you, whether it's you on social media or the company, how can they get more of Christine? Yes. So you can find me through LinkedIn. That's probably the best place to find me. I, I do have a TikTok account, but that's a private account. That's so. cool. <laughs> yeah, thank you. But, uh, and I also am a professor at Rice University too. So, um, you're interested in taking my class at the MBA school at Rice, feel free to join. Very cool. Christine, thank you so much. Fascinating conversation. You've given me a lot to think about with, with what's going on behind the scenes with the real estate investing space. Enjoyed it. Thanks again to my guest, Christine Mastandrea from Whitestone REIT. So interesting, so fascinating. If you want to get more information, go to the Wealthy on website. We got all the episodes up there, a lot more you can check out. Of course, the YouTube channel's got everything as well. Please like it, share it, forward it, comment, engage. The more interaction we get, the more people can watch this, the more the algorithms serve it up for others to enjoy and learn as well. And of course, WealthyOn.com got a couple of things there. There's a short form if you're looking for financial advice, investment professionals that we endorse, that we vetted, we can connect you with them. It's free. There's no obligation. You can just have a conversation, see if you like them. You can check out Anthony Scaramucci's show. You can submit questions for it because he takes questions live. Uh, and you can fill out the form there at 
wealthyearn.com. So a lot of resources there. Appreciate you watching. Appreciate you listening. I'm Eric Chemney. We'll see you next time.